Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors annual sales event now on. One-off price reductions and special APR finance available during this event. Call in today and save thousands at Blackstone Motors, Drada and Dundalk. You're very welcome to Tuesday Afternoon's Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Coming up on today's show, a little bit later on, the SS Dundalk. We followed this story from about a year and a half back, and we have an update for you. There's been a development in the IRC. We're going to tell you about that. Marie Agnew is joining us after three. Erica McGann's in the house. She's a top children's author from Drogheda, and she's a brilliant new book out. Sinead Kelly is here, a vet. Have you a question about your pooch or pussy or any other pet you might have in your house? Get it into us straight away 086-1800-658 is the text or WhatsApp number or if you have a question for Sinead you can call in now on 1850-715-958 but first I have to say I'm emotional today because when you're involved with something for 10 years it's a huge part of your life isn't it and you do know that on late launch we launched it here 10 years ago and I've been with them all the way each year featuring a number of their runners going to the marathons meeting them before and after the races yes I'm talking about team carry it is the final curtain and it was the final curtain in Dublin on Sunday I was there and what a memorable day it turned out to be you know we've been following Ian Pat Carroll Rachel Kelly and Sarah McCann right through from they started training to the finish on the marathon line on Sunday and I can tell you that Ian Pat Carroll is here in the studio with me Sarah McCann's in Milan and we're going to tell you why in a moment and Rachel Kelly I think is tied up at work but we're going to hear from her uh, in a short while on the show but the man himself is in the hot seat David Carey is here as well I want to welcome you boys to late lunch this afternoon thank you so much for joining me on the show let me start with yourself David well how are you feeling the dust has settled yeah marathon day over you've had a bit of a celebration in Dunleer I'm sure on Sunday night What's the the body saying, the mind saying to David Carey today? Oh, marvellous feeling, Jerry. that we're still here after 10 years. As you said, we launched it 10 years ago. Hard to believe. Where did them 10 years go? But uh, it was a great celebration at uh, the 40th Dublin Marathon, the 10th year of Team Carey, and just experienced the whole celebration. And you, you could see yourself, uh, the emotions running high, the passion. It has everything, the marathon. And uh, it really was a tremendous day. I have to say to you that the day was a lovely day. It was just ideal for running. But I got the sense from just not our own three featured runners, but I met many members of your team coming in across the line. And it was a tough marathon for an awful lot of them. Yeah, it was a tough marathon. Um, 
Conditions-wise, was perfect. There is no doubt. It was. I, I ran my first Dublin Marathon in 1987, and that was my 17th Dublin Marathon. 11 in a row and 10 with Team Carry. Uh, Conditions-wise, I would have 17 mar- marathons I've run in Dublin. That was certainly one of the better conditions I ever experienced. Um, the marathon is never easy, Jerry. Uh, you know, they're tough mentally and physically. You have to test yourself and... People like to challenge themselves, which they do, and uh, maybe some people then, you know, maybe training didn't go according to plan and they still might push themselves, maybe looking for a personal best time or something, or people could be recovering from injuries and not, uh, you know, you know, getting the sufficient amount of training done, and maybe the injuries come back to haunt them in the day. But really, if uh, you're prepared well, injury-free, health good, uh, you will make the most of them conditions. Now, we had 123 running with Team Carry on uh, on Sunday in, in, in the 40th Dublin Marathon. and uh, We had some amazing performances. Mm. Amazing. Uh, everyone was happy. Yeah, there was one or two just didn't get the runs they wanted. But no one was disappointed, yes. Jerry. You know, a marathon is a marathon. Mm. It's always difficult and always hard and you've always said that and that came through I'm not saying everybody the achievement is unbelievable but everyone had their stories to tell on the way round none more so than Ian Pat Carroll who's with us on Late Lunch today you're so welcome to the show good to see you resplendent with your medal and all before I chat to you let's go back to the finish line on Sunday and have a listen to this we met a girl that uh, Adele knew that was struggling and sure, I wasn't going to make me time so why worry about it this is team spirit you get people across the line you got some welcome at the finish there you had the team flag flying high and the three you came down to the finish what a round of applause yeah well that was an extra special surprise for me because as I, as I told you Jerry, this was a very special marathon for me uh, about 8-9 weeks ago I became a grandfather for the first time so unbeknown to me my grandchild was there at about 800 metres ago so uh, I actually held my grandchild on the marathon course so she has been on the course for her first double marathon <laughs> what's her name? Grania. yes there you are Ian Pat and uh, the emotion in your voice you can just feel uh, it yeah well you know all marathons are, are emotional but I think that was extra special you know as I told you it was a tough year with a lot of uh, bereavements in the family you know, but there's always a silver lining. A little light shining <coughs> at yeah. the end of the day. Now, your story took a whole new dimension as you ran through Dublin on Sunday. Tell the listeners what happened, because I was waiting for you at the finish, and I want to say congratulations to the Dublin Marathon. David, you know this, you got me to download. The, the app is marvellous. You can track every runner in the race. And we were worried. We said... Where is he gone? <laughs> Tell us what happened to you. Uh, well, unfortunately, there was a, a friend of Edel Bowen's was struggling. And so, like as I said, I wasn't going to do my time. Edel was quite happy to stay with her. But, you know, it took two of us to link the girl, you know. And she had she had already refused the medics' advice not to finish. She said, no, I'm finishing. So I hadn't, I wasn't familiar with this at this stage, you know. So, look, we linked her and we got walking a little bit faster. But when we got to the uh, the flyover, which is about 24 mile, she took a little bit of a turn again. So the medics arrived again. But uh, they checked her out and they were happy. And I said, look, it, she's not going to finish on her own. We feel that she, like we weren't going to put her, her health at, at risk. We were quite happy. She was just tired, 
and uh, we said, look at, we'll get across the line. You know, we're not going to win it at this stage. <laughs> and here they come, the three of them. I could see them in the distance coming. I knew because we had got word that this was happening, that you were helping this lady to the finish line. And you know what it sums up? It, sh- it sums up the togetherness, the spirit, the camaraderie of the Martin. But hold on a second. I want to just uh, let listeners hear from the woman herself. Her name is Teresa Foy. She's from Meath. And this is what she had to say to us on the finish line. What's your name? Teresa Foy. And only for Team Carry, I would never cross this line today. And this is my 10th marathon and I needed it. <laughs> Where are you from, Teresa? Um, well, I'm run with Rick Henny, but I'm from Woodton. County Meath. County Meath. So County Loud and County Meath. County Loud carried County Meath over the line. Absolutely, today, yeah? me, they did. And fair play to them. I swear they were my saviours. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't this a great story? It, it really is. is. And Teresa, it shows you the camaraderie of the Martin and the care for one another. Absolutely. Wonderful. Just amazing. Yes, Teresa Foy there on the line. Look at that lady. Owes yourself and Adele Bohan so much. She wouldn't have completed it without 10th marathon. Yeah, and experienced runner, you know. But like, mm. what do you do? You're not going to let somebody that has trained hard and mm. put in the work not finish if you think they can finish. You know, I'm not going to worry. There's more marathons I can do. <laughs> I'm not going to win it. So what are you worried about? <laughs> ten you've done. You've done all ten, Ian Pat, yep. with Team Carry. And I, I remind people again, this is the man that when you go to Dunlear on a training night, you'll have a cup of tea. He has the biscuits ready, the cakes. They do have cakes, you know. They expend the energy when they do their training. And, you know, you get together after each training session. And you've been there from the word go. For you, was it an emotional day? I said to David Carey, because he is the leader of Team Carey, but for yourself, you're an integral part of it. How are you feeling? What are you going to do next year? I'll find something to do. But <laughs> um, I certainly don't... Let's put it this way. I expect to be in Dublin next year. OK. May not be running it. If I'm running it, running it so well and good. If not, I'll, I'll certainly volunteer, because volunteers are what keeps us going. Mm. But... I certainly have a few more marathons left to me yet. I'm only 60. I'm only young, lad. <laughs> He's only a whippersnapper for sure. Let's have a listen uh, to another of our featured runners, uh, Rachel Kelly. And Rachel, unfortunately, work commitments today. She just can't be here with us. We followed Rachel from the start. How many uh, marathons was this for Rachel, David? Uh, this was Rachel's uh, tour in a row, tour okay. double marathon. With Team Cam. Yes. Yeah, so three in a row for Rachel. And here we are again on the finish line on Sunday. Rachel Kelly. I am absolutely exhausted. It was the sem- second toughest marathon I've ever done. My leg went at mile 11 or 12. So the second half of the marathon was very, very, very tough. But I had to dig in deep. I just got to the finish line. And I'm just so relieved and happy. I've got to get that medal now. It's the hardest medal I've ever earned. But I'm absolutely chuffed. It's all over now. It's done now, and It did go cause a decline, but I'm happy. It's done. I'm just now. Yes, Rachel Kelly on the finish line. And we have to tell listeners about Rachel. Rachel's a very Rachel's a very special woman, David. She's a very inspirational woman. Um, she's certified as being deaf. And uh, I, I actually didn't know for, for two years that Rachel was deaf. And um, I did uh, notice her at training a few times. She always sits in the front row and she's obviously lips reads, etc., and uh, when she told me her story, I was just blown away. And no one in the team actually knew mm-hmm. for two years about Rachel. And when I actually said, do you know Rachel Kelly? Kelly is deaf. No no one actually believed me. There's no one chatting to her here. And you've seen the way you've chatted her, you know, over the last 20 weeks, her training. She's just an inspirational person. Mm-hmm. Just gets on her running, gets on her training and uh, chats to everyone, talks to them. And 
she really is an inspiration for an awful lot of people. And you know, she's running in a world of silence. When 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 you consider this, you know that we are all have our all our senses, and you know what's going on around you. And she's out on the road there, looking ahead. You know. It's it, it, it's just a, fantastic, isn't it? She's she's just such an inspiration, I would say. Yeah, too. and it was the second year she actually sent me a lovely email uh, and she said in her email to me that she was thanking me for the last couple of years and she said, considering I'm death, I, I was... I was shocked when I read that, you know. Mm. And but she's very funny and she's great humour and she knows I like the crack and she put <laughs> put the end of it. I I didn't even I couldn't even hear what you were saying out of that bloody <laughs> loudspeaker. As, as everyone knows, I go around with her loud hair a lot of whole time. He but does. you know, she, uh, she she's she's very funny. But she you know she's great and she she's she runs with Mandy and she runs with Maria and Mandy the three. Hatch. Yeah, yeah, and and they're going to New York for the the, the New York marathon now on Sunday next weekend. And I'm hoping to join them there but uh, she's wonderful and she, she really is a very very integral part of our team she certainly is let's take a short break and late lunch because Sarah McCann uh, we want to hear from Sarah McCann she was the newbie this year the virgin marathon runner and we're going to hear from Sarah and more from the boys after this short break year 10 team carry Dublin marathon we've heard from Ian Pat Carroll who's in studio Rachel Kelly and Sarah McCann is abroad today but on Sunday Again, I was there at the finish line. What a privileged place to be. And let's go back to Sunday and hear what Sarah McCann had to say when she completed her first ever marathon. Well, do you know what? Honestly, the first 11 miles were the best run of my life, if that makes any sense. It was just so buzzing. I couldn't get over how gorgeous the weather was, the crowd. I was actually singing and I was running with Helen, one of the girls, and she's like, oh my God, you're buzzing. So the first 11 miles was honestly amazing. The next couple, I was like, right, Sarah, now you're getting a bit tired, pace it. And then I was fine for another 11. A mile 22, my left knee, bang, gone. The pain just shot up through the body. So it was the injury I had Jerry for the half marathon and it just knocked out my last four miles so I just walked for a mile and then every time I tried to jog just the pain was unreal but then I managed just one by walking it just to stretch it a bit and I just got into a very slow jog there for the last three but you know what Jerry I don't care I just ran a marathon Jerry like I just ran a marathon in 2006 a very good friend of mine Michael Morgan um, neighbour cousin by marriage died running the Dublin marathon and there is a picture of him in my pocket and I didn't tell anybody I'm happy to say it now I didn't tell I've told one person in the world there's a picture of him in my pocket so now he has come across the finish line with me so I had a moment where I knew that he got sick and I knew that you know he had his issues and I had the picture in my pocket and I just had my moment and I said right Michael we're going to make it across the finish line and he's in my pocket so there's so many reasons why it's just so special Oh, my word. You know, things you don't know, David Carey or Ian Pat, you know, with people like yourself and that, that there are more stories to the marathon than we'll ever hear about. And Sarah just told me that and really just get hit you for six when when you hear something like that. Now, she can't be with us today. She's in Milan. But we couldn't let that separate us, could we? She's on the line from Italia. Sarah McCann, good afternoon. Hello, oh, Sarah. Hello from Milano, Jerry. How are you? Me? How are you? Listen, it's great, great. To, to hear from you today. Uh, we, have you have you been listening there to yourself at the finish line? I was. I think I might have been a little bit delirious, Jerry, when you <laughs> met me at the finish line. But I was so happy. I was just so so happy. And, and tell <laughs> us, the, the, there's a connection today. Why are you in Milan? Tell us, Sarah. 
So I'm in Milan because I'm standing here looking at the programme for the 37th Milano International uh, Federation of Cinema, Television and Sport Festival. And the Team Carry um, Turtles and Hares documentary that I made is going to be screening here in about an hour and a half. So it's a huge festival that we screened at. And I'm absolutely delighted to be here to represent it and to see what all the Italian people think of Team Carry and all its antics. Uh, isn't that just isn't that just fabulous for yourself to complete the marathon having made that documentary and you know to be part of the team this year right at the heart of it as well you know I heard you there on the finish line but with the dust settled after the last few days and considering what you achieved it's a huge thing in your life I know oh god it's yeah it's ginormous and you know I spent a couple of months filming with Team Carrie, so I kind of thought I knew all there was to know about marathon running, you know, without running, without ever running a marathon, I thought I was an expert anyway, but um, until you do it, Derry, you just don't realise what it takes out of you emotionally, you know, just mentally, then time-wise and the training, but I was just sitting thinking about it over the last couple of, of um, days, and just like being a part of Team Carrie, like I feel like I was now on the inside looking out instead of when I was making a documentary, you know, I was on the outside looking in. So I feel really privileged because I've had the chance to be, you know, on both sides. You know, I've had a chance now to be part of a core part of the team and I'm just so happy and privileged to have had that chance. Well, the main man is here with us in studio. He wants to say something to you, David. Hi, Sarah. Hello, David. Can you hear me? You were here. How, how does it feel to be a marathoner? Oh my God, I still can't believe it. I really can't. I think I'm still in shock. <laughs> Congratulations and uh, best wishes too for the Totals of Hairs documentary. You've put an awful lot of work into that in 2016 and you're getting the recognition you deserve and I really do hope it goes down a storm and uh, we wish you all the best over there in Milan. Oh, thank you. We just got shown into the room where it's going to be filmed. So we just came outside now, or it's going to be shown. Sorry, we came outside because we've got another hour a bit before it's screened. So we came outside just to sit and have a bit a bit of food. So it's lovely to be in Milan, a city I've never been in before, but it's even nicer to be here now for such a special occasion, you know? Yeah, and we can just remind listeners out there as well, they can actually get to see it themselves, Sarah. Will you just explain how they will see it? Yeah, so um, I got assigned to a French distributor who um, distributes lots of sports documentaries. So they have it up now on both Amazon and also on Vimeo On Demand. So if anybody even searches for Turtles and Hares on Google, um, they'll find the links to watch it both on Amazon and Vimeo On Demand. So you have a choice to either rent it or I think watch it over 48 hours or you can buy it and have it forever. So hopefully I, I more to check that out is on Little Road Productions or on the Team Carry. Yes, huh? you can just Google it. Yeah, she oh, says you just Google yeah, it. That's so all you, can you do. Just Google Turtles yeah. and Hair's documentary. It will come up. Yeah. yeah, great stuff, Sarah. We let you go. Congratulations. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. That's Sarah McCann there joining us live from Milan, where Turtles and Hair's is about to be screened at uh, an Italian film festival. So here we are, ten years on. Do you remember the day you came here first to the studio? Oh, I don't remember the day. I- I remember uh, you, you getting in contact with me and saying, I think this is a wonderful idea and you invited me on to the show and let's see how it goes. Do I remember it vaguely? Mm, me too, but I do remember because we talked beforehand and in you came and you introduced it. You thought but, it was a wonderful idea ah. and you says, you know, you said, you, said, you know, I, I just love the idea of it, let's see how it goes and we can, 
into the studio. I came in actually myself. Yes. And I spoke to you and I told him I had a 20 week training plan. Was there anyone out there interested in doing the marathon? And the, the first, first text came from Mr. Rory McCullough. Rory McCullough. He sent the Owen first McAvoy. text in. And I was sitting with him on the coach front seat going to Dublin 10 years later, sitting yeah. beside him on the coach. Isn't it just a real irony? How much have you raised for charity? Uh, today we've raised over 400,000 for charity and. Uh, Primarily the Gary Kelly Cancer Support Centre, but we we, we we encourage people to raise for whatever charity. Yes, to choose. people have done their own thing as well within yeah. within the whole thing. Yeah. It's mighty, Ian Pat, isn't it? When you when you just mention that amount of money, it's oh, incredible. It's, it's fantastic, you know. And I was talking to one of the girls, and uh, she said, like everybody has a modern story. Now I won't go into detail, but she said, a couple of years ago she went through a very traumatic situation, and somebody says, join Team Kerry. And she says she wants you to remember for having done the marathon, not the traumatic se- yes. thing that she went mm. through, you know. And I, I didn't know it, but she came to me. As I always say, sometimes I feel like a little bit of a therapist on a wedding night. <laughs> you know, but, but yes. that's, it's a social thing. They come mm. in and have a chat. They talk to Dave about his injuries, you know. Mm. But they might come to me and talk about all the little things. They say, look, sit down and have a cup of tea. It'd be grand. Yeah. And over a cup of tea, you know, Irish people... <coughs> Well, great people to open up. And, and, you know, you've become a trusted friend as, you know, one of David's right-hand men, I have to say, on Team Carry as well. You've made lots of new friends. Ah, oh, I can't, I couldn't, you know, so many friends, you know. And as we always say on the night out, you know, the first thing I say, God, I didn't recognise you with your clothes on because you just see them in running gear and you don't <laughs> see them when they're all dressed up, you know. That's, you know. What do you say about this man sitting beside you today and his wife, Aileen, you know, all the sheriff as she's known. All I can say is, David and Aileen, thanks for a fantastic 10 years. There's nights when it's been hard to go down there because you're after doing a day's work, you may have been travelling somewhere, but, you know, you'll pack the gear into the car and you'll head down and once you have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and you see the buzz. I have to say, I think in the whole 10 years, I think last Wednesday night, I think had to have been the... Sadly, it was the last night, but I think the buzz and emotion of, of last Wednesday night was unreal. Mm. I think everybody really let their hair down, you know. Mm. Stephen Garrity's been on from Chairman Feck, and, and, and it's a question I was going to ask you, because we just see news today. He wants to know what David thinks about the lottery system uh, for the marathon from next year. Yeah, the, the double marathon now, it's, it's the fourth biggest now in Europe, and it's so, it was sold out in 40 days, I think, last year. So I, I've just become aware that there is a, a, a lottery system. How it works, I actually don't know. Mm. But uh, I suppose every marathon now is, is making changes. Mo- most major marathons now all over the world are sold out in a year in advance too. Mm. So I suppose the message is to get your entry, get your entry. in. It's, it's It'd so be a pity to rule anyone out, wouldn't it, that would want to do it, you know, or that people would be ruled out that maybe have run before or that. We'll watch this space, but it's just been announced actually this morning that it will be a lottery system with the applications open from the first that's only uh, this week, the 1st of November. This is this Thursday or Friday, is it Friday? Yeah. Uh, t- until the 30th of November. So if you're thinking of doing the marathon next year, you need to get in now. Oh uh, yeah, we'll sell out, stage. Jerry. Yeah. We'll sell out. So we- we'll talk about that again. But I, we, I, personally, I don't know, but I'd hate to see that, you know, it become restrictive or people, like your concept could be hit. You know what I mean? You might have 130 people. How many yeah. of them will actually be accepted? You know what I'm saying? But we better watch this space to find out a little bit more about it. Well, I do know in some major marathons, they might get uh, uh, 400,000 applications for maybe 40,000 spots you yeah, know so, so what did they do you have to do something it's, it's like that and Dublin has become that big when you think of the 10 years you have so many memories you have so many people 
I, I think of the stories and the people like Ian, Pat and our crew this year, Rachel and Sarah as well, that you brought us. We picked three each year and, and, and went with them. Does any, any more than others stick in your mind? Everyone is a marathon story, Jerry, and we, we've helped 1,058 people cross that finish line in 10 years. Who've never done a marathon before? No, they wouldn't. Well, it was some of them would have come yeah. back to do it, yeah, you know. Yeah. But for the we, first time, you've, you've first brought time, so many. Yeah. I kind of knew we had something special the first year because we had 38 running the marathon and 37 of them was doing the marathon for the first time. The only one that was me. So I remember saying to Aileen, and I, this would never have been possible without Aileen, I says, we've got something special here. I says, we, we keep this going. And we did initially just, it was supposed to be a one-year project. And then we said, right, we'll go for three, we'll go for five... And then we went to six. I said we have to, we have to go to ten, but we knew after ten, yeah, you know that it was time yeah, to, to, yeah. to to step. Absolutely, down, you know? absolutely. I think you're making the right decision to. I, I've never seen such a commitment by people for ten years, you know. And you have many people by your side for the ten years, but for yourself and Alien and your family, what you've put into it over that time and given it, it's simply incredible. It really is. Like everybody does, Jerry run a marathon for their own personal reasons. Everyone has their own story. And some might share, some mightn't, but it's important to them. And it gives them a lot of positivity and confidence to bring in to, to other aspects of their life. Mm. There's more to Team Carry than just running. I've always said that. And, you know, it was the social aspect of it. And it does, I mean, I've seen people, I, I told a story before that I, I, I remember a woman ringing, ringing me up one day and she says, can I speak to David Carey? And I said, speaking. And she said, I'm getting really, really worried about my husband. And I says, oh no, I says, is there anything seriously wrong? Well, she said, I came home the other day and he was out cutting the grass. <laughs> and I paused for a second and I says, well, I don't think, I says, that would be much of an issue or a problem. Well, she says, considering he hasn't cut the grass in three years, she says, I don't know what you're doing, she said, but keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> I think that sums it up. But uh, look, it's been a wonderful, wonderful 10 years, may I say. It's been an honour and a privilege to be a little part of Team Carry on Late Lunch and LMFM Radio and I have enjoyed every minute I've spent with you. It's uplifting, it's been wonderful and you know you've done something really good, David Carey and your wife Aileen and everybody involved with the team and everybody who's taken part. Hats off to all of you. Simply the best. And thank you, Jerry Kelly, LMFM and all your producers through the year. Louise here, Deirdre Hawley. You've been so good to us and you've become great friends of us and we, 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 you know, it was really wonderful to be part of the Late Lunch Show and we really appreciate it. Look, thank you all again and thanks Ian Pat for coming in to Sarah and Rachel as well this year, our featured runners. There will be a full podcast. I retrieved the files at a bit of an accident on Sunday uh, with the little recorder, but I've retrieved the files and I will be putting together a full po- podcast on Team Carry 2019 and we'll let you know about that. And of course, we'll see you again. Don't worry about that. He'll be back. Ian Pat Carroll, congratulations to you. David Carey, thank you for joining me today. Team Carry, wonderful. You won't get better advice anywhere in Ireland on a radio station for free, I guarantee you, this day. Because you know who's in the hot seat? Yes, you know her. Well, you love her. It's Sinead Kelly. Our vet is back. Sinead, great to see you. Nice to be back. Thank Thanks, you Jerry. for joining us again on the show. I'll remind you of the numbers. And we have questions coming already. Keep them coming to us. 086-1800-658. WhatsApp or text your questions. Or if you want to pick up the phone, Bridge will take your message. 086-1800-658. Let's begin with a question. 
question from Johnny Mooney. He has a nine-year-old Labrador dog. Believed the dog is in per- perfect mm. health up until yesterday when he started profusely licking his jaws on both sides of the face. Okay. And he seems to be in some discomfort. What would be up, Johnny wants yeah, to know? Yeah, um, I mean, maybe he could have a look in the dog's mouth, first of all. I mean, if the dog is licking a lot, it's possible that there's something stuck in the mouth. So sometimes you get a bit of stick or a bit of something that they've been chewing stuck in the mouth. So have a little look yourself. On the roof of the mouth is the place where bits of wood and stick get stuck. Have a look along the side of the teeth and underneath the tongue. Um, if you can't see anything, then have a little look at the condition of the teeth and gums. Have you got a build-up of plaque and tartar? Are the gums looking red and inflamed? Because dental disease and gum disease can cause a lot of licking. So they'd be the, the two most important important things to check for. So if you can't see anything yourself, then I would pop along to the vet and just get them checked out. Um, excess saliva, you know, or, you know, salivation or or licking their lips a lot is either a sign of something in the mouth, some pathology within the mouth, or uh, maybe a little bit of nausea. So as I say, if you see nothing yourself, get it checked out in case there's something else causing the dog to feel a little bit sick. Thanks, Sinead. Next one for you. Jerry. our dog killed a rat in the back okay. garden yesterday. Could he catch anything from the rat? Yeah, I mean, there would be a small risk of catching leptospirosis, which is uh, a little bacterial infection that is kind of rife uh, amid uh, the, the kind of rat population and is spread via their urine. So really, if you're handling, if if, uh, if the dog is handling a rat or it comes into contact with rat urine via wounds or via the mucous membranes or gets bitten by a rat, then there is a, leptospiro- a risk of leptospirosis. Now, hopefully your dog is fully vaccinated and gets a booster every year uh, because the leptospirosis is protected against in the 4-in-1 um, annual vaccination. So maybe just check your uh, check with your vet or check your vaccine card. If you're fully vaccinated, you should be fine. If not, there is a risk of lepto. So I would certainly think about, you know, it might be too late on this occasion, but if your dog does become sick in the next kind of days to weeks, I would go straight to the vet and say there was exposure to a rat. Um, but otherwise, definitely get the vaccination done. The other thing to say is, be careful yourself with picking a, a dead rat Oh, absolutely. Rat yeah, up. it's a zoonotic disease, so we can catch it directly from rats. Um, mainly through the the urine or in the in the water in the rivers, and also if our dogs pick up lepto, we can pick it up from them. So yeah, definitely, you know, it's you need to be very very careful with rats. So wear gloves, uh, scrub and disinfect your hands afterwards. Things like that. Christy's been on to us. Oh eight six eighteen hundred six five eight. Thank you. Keep them coming. And he says, I have a, a small dog, a Shih Tzu, ten year mm. old. And he's become very flatulent lately. Okay, right. Why? Yeah, I mean, there could be a change. If they had just check, has there been a change in diet? If he's not changed the diet deliberately, um, it's possible that maybe uh, the dog is getting access to something when he's scavenging in the bins or in the park or something like that. So try and rule that out. Um, the other possibility would be that the dog is developing a little bit of a sensitivity to something in the diet. Now, if it's being accompanied by diarrhea, I would definitely have a chat with your vet and get it investigated. If it's not accompanied by diarrhea and it's just the annoyance of the of the excess wind um, again have a chat with your vet there are different things you can do and there's medications or kind of oral supplements that you can do to reduce wind and flatulence but think first along the lines of diet uh, scavenging and, and then have a chat with your vet if you're getting nowhere with that Great stuff uh, Marie has been on thank you I have two cats found an abandoned kitten last week which I've been keeping separate okay. for the moment to the other two any advice Sinead on the best way to assimilate the new arrival yeah, um, I mean, from a from a disease control point of view, there's the risk of the little kitten maybe spreading kind of cat flu or something like that to the cat. So hopefully, first of all, your own cats are vaccinated. If they're not, then get them vaccinated and get the kitten vaccinated. Um, 
um, if you're happy from a disease control point of view, so for example, if you've had the kitten for a week to 10 days and there have been no signs of sneezing or snuffling or no signs of illness, then from a kind of disease point of view, you're probably fine to introduce them. From a kind of social point of view, your best bet is probably to put the little kitten in a little basket, uh, snug and safe in a nice little basket with a bed and bring the kitten into a room where the cats are and let the cats come over and sniff the kitten through the bars of the basket so there's a bit of safety for the kitten and so the cats can get used to it. And then if that's tolerated, then you just maybe take the kitten out, have the kitten in your lap, let the cats come and sniff. In most occasions, they'll probably just come and give a sniff or ignore it. Cats tend to ignore each other at the beginning. So, But just do a little gradual, gentle exposure and, and you should be fine. It's important to do that. Oh be- yeah, definitely, definitely. And make sure that, that the cat, you do have enough facilities for all the cats. So if you have three cats, make sure you have three litter trays, make sure you have three food bowls, three water bowls, so they're not all trying to compete over the one set of resources. But definitely do a gradual exposure. Okay, next one. Mary's been on. Hi, Jerry. Our little Jack Russell, three-year-old, staggered into the kitchen this morning. Her eyes were dilated and her legs all over the place. She then got sick in front of us, lots of foam coming out. Any idea what would have come over her? She's a very active little dog. Yeah, she needs to go straight to the vet, I would say. I might be worried about some acute, whether she's taken something toxic on board, so she ingested something toxic, for example, mouldy bread or any kind of toxic chemical that's icing about. Um, or is she having some acute kind of uh, brain or, or heart episode? So your, your dog needs to be in the vet, so you need to go there straight away. They are alarming circumstances. Yeah, yeah. You know, you and even if it's away. past, you would yeah, say you the need dog needs to be checked yeah, out. Definitely, definitely. That's very important, Mary. Yeah. So so, uh, hot-footed to the vet as soon as you can there. Now, here's an interesting one, and it's about a budgie. We haven't had a budgie question. No, we don't get many budgie calls. We don't get many budgie calls at all. But here's one for you. Let's see what you make of this. Our budgie is not well. He's sleeping a lot. Feathers are ruffled constantly, sitting and shivering and breathing quite slowly at the bottom of the cage. Okay, again, he needs to go to the vet. Uh, Budgies are a bit like babies, so they tend to show similar signs no matter what the cause of the illness. So they tend to go a bit quiet, get a bit fluffed up, um, you know, their breathing pattern changes. So definitely you need to go and get that investigated. The budgie will need a full clinical exam and then take it from there. So Mm. you definitely need to go to the vet. It's not going to get better if it's on a court. No, and I don't mean to alarm you. I've had a few of them in my time and that's, I'd say that budgie's yeah, the budgie's in trouble. In yeah, trouble. you need to go to the vet straight away. Age-wise, yeah. perhaps. How yeah. long do they live? What's a budgie's, by I the way? They live about seven or eight years, yeah, or even a bit longer. But yeah, yeah so they can live quite a while, yeah. Okay, so there you are. You better get that uh, little creature checked out as soon as possible. Here's an interesting one. Oh, God, where's this come from? Is it possible to determine the age of a dog? We have a Jack Russell stray for nearly five years now. No one ever claimed her. She's part and parcel of our family, but we'd love to know what age she is. Yeah, it's very difficult. Uh, I mean, a little bit you can go on the condition of the teeth. So basically, the cleaner the teeth, the less tartar, the younger they are. But I mean, a lot of it will depend on what the dog's diet has been and how you've been looking after the teeth. So apart from that, you can go a little bit on grey, how grey they are. Uh, Dogs like humans tend to grey as they get older, but that can occur from middle age onwards. So really, you can only give a very approximate estimation. So maybe have a chat with your vet. That's pr- they're probably better able to judge from the teeth. But apart from that, it's a bit of a mystery. I mean, Cleo herself, the great princess, who knows how old she is? We've had her nine years. They said she was approximately two when we got her. She could have been between two and five, I would say. So uh, it's a secret chill that uh, she'll keep with her as a lady. Um, but yeah, it's very, very difficult to age them. It's not like with horses where you can specifically age them from the, the patterns in the teeth and the wear and tear 
things like that. But uh, no, you're you're never going to know that, unfortunately. And she's here in studio as she always oh, is with Sinead. Sitting beside me, yeah. Just, I'll tell you, she's just got so used to this yeah, gig; it's yeah. unbelievable. She's my little shadow. That, that's, yeah. that's for sure. You mentioned a horse there. Here's a, a related one. We have a pony since July okay. last, so that's very recent. We're uh, learning as we go. Okay. How would I know if he had colic? Oh, you'll know all right. So colic is basically the term for abdominal pain. Uh, and the causes of abdominal pain within a horse are, range from the mild to the very serious and life-threatening. Uh, and so they tend to they tend to look uncomfortable. They might kind of roll on the ground, uh, look a bit tucked up, hunched up. Um, they might turn around and keep looking at their tummy. Um, they get, get sweaty. Uh, they they, they um, go off their food. So you will know. And it's something not to ignore because it can be something mild, like a little bit of, of a gassy spasm or it can be something where they've a twisted gut and they could die within an hour. So you need to, it's something that you need to get instant veterinary attention for. But if you, even if you don't know a huge amount of horses, you should be able to tell from the horse's behaviour that something is wrong and that there is abdominal pain. So, but definitely don't ignore it. Hi Sinead, I have a seven month old Shih Tzu who will never come back to me when I call her. What can I do to train her? Okay, um, I mean, probably the first thing to do, I mean, hopefully the dog is a bit food orientated. Um, if not, what you need to do is find a really high value treat. So go to the pet shop, uh, maybe think of even getting small amounts of little tiny bits of little hot dogs, something like that, that the dog really values. Um, go out into your garden or even in the front room of your house you just attract the dog's attention um, see if they can smell or see the, the bit of treat and hopefully they'll come back when you call them and they get the treat and they do learn quite quickly that if they come back they get a treat and so with a dog like that I mean it's normally possible um, the princess Cleo herself is trained to come back for, because there's food now you might have to find as I say the high value treat but, but you can certainly do it that way if the dog and Shih Tzus are kind of a bit funny they're not known to be very foodie so if they're not a dog who's very driven by food um, then you may need to go down the professional line and, and contact um, a dog behaviourist or a dog trainer to, to try and get a little bit of help with that but I would try with the, with the food first of all is the, is the best way to go really and also always make sure that when the dog comes back they get loads of praise even if they've taken half an hour to come back shouting and bawling at the dog just makes the dog realise that actually when I come back I just get into trouble so why would I bother so it's <laughs> got to be so when you come back it's got to be a reward it's got to be loads of praise and cuddles and tickles or a game with a ball or something that the dog values otherwise Sure, why would they bother? Do you know? Pat has an eight-month-old collie dog. It's, he's just been in touch with us and he says the dog keeps running out chasing cars. Oh, God. And it's very hard to get him in. The only thing that works is coaxing him by putting down his feeding dish. Is there any other way, though, to... It's very difficult. What I mean, short from physically, physically preventing him, I think you have to do that mm-hmm. because the dog may well get killed and that's what happens to a lot of uh, car chasers. Um, the other possibility is, I mean, some people have these, what they're called, the electric fences where you have the electric collars so you have like the the um, the, 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 the shock collar treatment which I normally don't approve of at all. But if it's a desperate situation like that where you have no other way of keeping the dog off the road, then think of something like that, whereby they, when they go past a certain boundary, then, then they get a shock and it brings them back in. Um, but I mean, I think you need to probably chat to a dog a dog trainer or behaviourist for the best way of doing that. But you're going to have to get it sorted out. Number one, the dog may well get killed. Number two, it's also really stressful and scary for drivers. And number three, someone's going to have an accident one day trying to swerve to avoid them. So how are you going to feel if the dog causes an accident yes. or something like that? So action needed there uh, as soon as possible, Pat. Uh, two Kakariki parrots who 
they're trying to breed, but the hen is refusing the male's advances okay. in the nesting box. What can I do to make things happen, well, says Liam? possibly very little. Uh, the reality is, and I think I've said it before, I'm really not a fan of people having parrots and birds and things like that as pets. The reality is most of them are used to living in jungles and tropical climates and living in the wild. And so if we think about the conditions and the atmosphere that we keep them in, we keep them in a really artificial you know place and it's the same in zoos the reason why in zoos you get such p- poor breeding success is because it's an abnormal environment and the the animals feel unable to express normal behavior and mating behavior is is normal behavior so if they're feeling not in a normal environment they may well not not display normal behavior uh, from a basic point of view all you can do is make sure that their box is in a very quiet part of the house that they've got peace and quiet that there's no noise uh, that it's something that you can cover up at night that there's not an awful lot of throughput and traffic and things like that but other than that you, you may well be going to struggle just simply because with the best care in the world no matter how much you love them no matter how much you care, the, care for them they are living in a completely abnormal environment that's not where they should be. So they are less likely to exhibit normal behaviour because they're just not in the right place. That's the reality. Question. Uh, we have a, a puppy six months old. How often should uh, a puppy dosed? Uh, every three months. So up until kind of from three months to, to six months every month. Uh, before that, so up until three months every two to three weeks. And then after six months every three months, really. And if your dog is the kind of dog that eats dog poo and cat poo, you may need to do it more often than that because that's how they're ingesting the worm eggs. And unfortunately, because there are so many irresponsible people around that don't clear up the dog poo, if you have a dog who likes to eat grass or roots around in the undergrowth, they're probably coming into contact with dog and cat faeces on a regular basis, which a lot of it is probably hooching with worm eggs. And that's how the life cycle of the, of the worms carries on. They ingest the worm eggs, the worms, the worms grow to adulthood within the dog, and then they then pass out more worm eggs. And so the problem then is, I mean, the worms to the dog themselves will cause problems, maybe a little bit of diarrhoea, a little bit of problems with weight gain. But the problem is is if uh, humans, especially children, come into contact with the worm eggs, because we're an abnormal host to the worms, the worms migrate within the body in, to the wrong places and they migrate to the eyes and the brain in particular and they can cause um, serious neurological disease, blindness, death. So, you know, that's a huge responsibility we as dog owners have. You know, if you think of where we walk our dogs, we walk our dogs where children are playing, you know, that's that's the issue. The whole area of dosing... Um should you then ensure that your dog is out after dosing or should you be ready to walk them quickly, you know, as the dose takes effect? Yeah, no, the dose te- doesn't tend to cause any problems. So you don't really tend to get any diarrhoea or anything like that. So you should be fine. You should okay, be fine. so that won't be the result at all. Now, Sinead, no need to tell you what date is coming oh, up. Oh, yeah, The 31st yeah. of October and it's timely you're here with us just ahead yeah. of it. Bangers, uh, look, thankfully, I have to say, in our area, they haven't yeah, gone been quiet wild this year. as yeah, yet. Thank yeah. God for that. But, you know, the next few nights, and especially the 31st, yeah. it's sure to go haywire. What's your advice to pet owners? Uh, make sure your cats and dogs and all pets are kept indoors and that they can't escape and get out because if they do get out with the noise and the sound and the light and everything, they may run off and get into, into trouble. Um, once your animals are inside, um, make sure the curtains are drawn, maybe have the television on or the radio on so you've got a little bit of, you know, other sound to, to distract them. Um, what you can do, it's a bit late for this now, but we tend to say to people in the run-up to Halloween, 
Halloween. You can do, uh, you have, there's desensitisation music and tapes and sounds that you can play to them over the kind of preceding weeks to months, which kind of gets them desensitised or used to the sounds. But it's probably a bit late for that if you've not done it. But otherwise, it's just practical things. Keep them inside. Keep the other other activities and noise, you know, going on to try and distract them uh, and, and just make sure that they're, that they're safe. Clients often phone up and they say they want sedation for the dog. The problem with sedation is actually the only sedatives that we can safely give out that are safe to use in a non-veterinary environment are ones that will not, you know, sedate them completely. So you end up often with a dog who's still really scared by the noise and the light, but actually they're just feeling a bit wobbly and a bit woozy. And, and often it just makes them feel even worse because they're wobbly, woozy and feeling a bit scared as well. So A dog that's traumatised, I'm thinking especially about dogs and if they bolt God knows oh, we've heard horror stories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the main thing is just make sure they're safe and they're indoors. Yeah. And there's no way really of acclimatizing them to these bangs. I know gun dogs. You know the way they. The, yeah, some... yeah. Well, as I say, there are there are tapes you can get, or there's music you can get online, desensitization uh, sounds. But that needs to be started a few months before Halloween. So you know maybe for next year you can start doing that. But I mean, it's such an abnormal noise. It's such a high pitch noise. We as humans hear them every year, and every time we still jump when we hear it. Um, you know. So I think. It's, it can be very hard to get them used to it. Is there any cure for a barking dog, Sinead? Our fellow, when we let him out, is a devil to bark, bark. I don't know what he's barking at, but he annoys me. I can only imagine what he's doing to the neighbours. Yeah, again, I mean, ideally, if you could find out what he is barking at, he's, po- about, he's possibly just full of joie de vivre and is just excited. It's probably, you're probably going to have to contact a dog behaviourist for a little bit of help, um, for special help and to how to kind of distract them from that. But distract Distraction is your main issue. So some people try squirting them with water pistols or going out with them and trying to play a game with them or throwing a ball for them or something to distract them. But you do, you, you need a bit of uh, behaviourist advice. So your vet should have the number and the name of a behaviourist they can have a chat with. Nothing worse, is there, than, no, than, than no. a constantly barking dog, yeah. to be honest. Uh, and uh, another one, did I ask you the one about the neutering? Did I, did no, I ask no, you that? No, oh, no. I nearly forgot this. Oh my God, good job I didn't. This came in to us earlier today. How long after neutering is a cat sterile? Uh, well, they should be sterile straight away because um, we would remove the ovaries and, and the uterus. So there should be no way that they could ovulate or get pregnant or hold a pregnancy. So they should be, um, you know, sterile straight away. We would tend to advise anyway that you keep them indoors for at least 10 days afterwards because they've had major abdominal surgery. So you shouldn't be letting them rake around the race Does anyway. the same apply to the male the males, version? I, suspe- I, I think um, in, in theory, they should be sterile straight away because you're removing your, your source of, of, um, of, of sperm. Um, but I suppose there might be a slight risk, um, you know, for a day or so afterwards. But no, I think in effect they are, you know, sterile straight away. Again, same with um, neutering a male dog. You know, they've had major surgery, so I would be keeping them indoors, maybe just lead exercise only or out in the garden until 10 days post-op. Terrific. Sinead Kelly, as usual, thank you so much for joining us and take care of those pets over Halloween. Okay. You'll be glad you did. Until the next time, thanks a million, Sinead. Yeah, thank you for you joining month. me on the show. On a dark, dark night in a very quiet library, there was an old, old, beautiful book. Looking out from the pages of the book was a plump grey mouse. When the clock struck twelve, the little mouse blinked. He stretched his little legs and he hopped right off the page. Yes, the first words from a beautiful new book that arrived here a few weeks back. It's called The Nighttime Cat and the Plump Grey Mouse, a Trinity College tale by Erica McGann. And guess what? The woman behind the words 
is with me today. You're welcome back to Late Lunch. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you yeah, again. To see you too. I just love this. Oh, I'm so glad. I really I love it too. I, you have the Midas touch, young woman, let me say. <laughs> it's wonderful. The premise of the whole thing. Tell mm-hmm. us about it. Where did this come from? Well, I always loved, like, um, I've been talking to the publisher back and forth because I'm working with them kind of constantly and um, we thought about Trinity for a while because it's such a gorgeous... I actually walk through it all the time. I live in the city centre and rather than go around the roads and down Pierce Street, I tend to walk through the college because it's just such a gorgeous place to walk through. So we're kind of talking about doing something set in Trinity College just because there's so much in there and it's so gorgeous and and you can't do Trinity College without the Book of Kells. So mm. out came the Book of Kells. Yeah. Pangerbon, the yes. beautiful cat, the mouse, the intrigue and the ghosts, the ghosts mm. of Trinity College. They, they're there, are they? They exist. Oh, they do. They absolutely do. There's a very famous ghost. There's one in there who's who's the actual ghost of Trinity, uh, Mr. Ford, who is the well-known ghost ghost of Trinity, and he haunts the rubrics. And uh, every, anybody who goes there would tell you he's definitely there. And so we've got all these kind of alumni. We've got all these famous because so many famous people were associated with the college and went to the college, and it's lovely to kind of bring them in. You know, famous authors and every. It's just you know, there's so there's so much stuff there to to read into. You know, you could you could grab them from anywhere. So, but Ford is the original. Is the, the original, original ghost, ghost yes. of Trinity, which dates back to 1592. It's there mm. an awful long time. The college, really is, we have yeah. to say. But others you mentioned, you know, Brown. Stoker is mm, there. Mm-hmm. Oscar Wilde is in the Samuel Beckett. Yeah. Queen Elizabeth I is even there. Mm-hmm. But so many that are fabled in the walls and halls of this place. Mm-hmm. You know, you write the, you start writing this and you sit down. Did you have, you know, the, the whole essence of the story in your mind when you started? How does uh, Erica McGann put it all together from word go? <laughs> She wings it, really, is what happens. I don't actually, like, you kind of, sometimes you start with, so I kind of had a couple of people I definitely knew you wanted in, like you wanted Ford and you wanted Oscar Wilde and um, I did want Queen Elizabeth in there. There's a shortage of women, obviously. They didn't get in until 1904, so you wouldn't have as many women in, so we, you know, want to make sure we have a few women in there. So, no, usually when you kind of start, there's something falls by the wayside or something brings you somewhere else. So I kind of like to wing. It's not the, it's not, the most reliable way to work but I enjoy it more for myself because I like it if I don't know what what's going on from one day to the next. I was reading in an article that you wrote or written about you that you're one that really believes you've got to be in the mood in the theme, you know, if you're writing a, a happy clappy book, you need to be in that zone in your life. Is that definitely. the way it works with you? Yeah, it definitely does. Like, I always need something to get me. Like, I think I started writing this when the weather was changing into autumn. And that really helps. Like, I really find writing that sort of book that has like a slightly spooky atmosphere or just something that's a little darker. When you're writing it and the, sh- the days are getting shorter and the leaves are on the ground, it, it just everything helps. It helps your mood a little bit. So I really find like the time of year, the mood I'm in, everything like that really really helps and so if, if you don't have it naturally you do try and recreate it a little bit so if I was doing that midsummer, I would have been covering some you know putting the Halloween decorations up really early or you know listening to some kind of haunting music on, on the computer while I'm working something like that I find like all that outside stuff really affects your mood and affects how you write so I try and like help it along as much as Is possible Is that because you experienced yourself in the past maybe a little bit of writer's block when you were doing something that you know you, you reach a point and you just stop 
You definitely do. And I think, like, I wouldn't call it writer's block anymore because I kind of know, like, it feels like the first time it happens or the first time you feel it, you're like, oh, God, this is a big wall. I'm not getting over it. Mm. But I think that's what it is. You just need to change something. That's usually what it means. It means you're not in the right mood or you haven't got the, we haven't got the sound right. I listen to stuff when I'm, when I'm writing a lot. I've gotten that wrong or something. So I know now it's usually indicative that I need a change. I just need to do something odd with my surroundings and that, that, that usually helps. What's your modus operandi? Did you take this book for example, right? You, you, you have the concept, you're putting it together. Do you go at it from start to finish or does it take time? Do you walk away from it a bit or how yeah, does that work? usually, so I'd, I'd kind of, so the picture books tend to take like longer per their word count, you know what I mean? Because you kind of have to, you're doing it very short bits at a time. So I'd usually kind of work through it and I work at home most of the time. And I would usually, for something like that, because Trinity was so nearby, I would go out and walk around Trinity when I was stuck for inspiration or, you know, um, so stuff like that. And then what I usually find is once I've finished a manuscript, I do need to leave it alone for a couple of weeks at least and then come back because you, you can't spot what's wrong with it when you've, when you've just written it or you're in the middle of it. You cannot spot what's wrong with it. And then you come back and you're like, ah, that's what's wrong with it. You know, you, you start spotting all the flaws. So usually I wait a couple of weeks, go back to it. I usually would try and wait another week or something with without ever looking, you know, without looking at it at all and then come back. Because you really do need those breaks to spot where the errors are, you know. It's illustrated by the wonderful Lauren O'Neill and what an illustrator you have on this book with you. And it really does. It stands out and it just, you know, your story and, and her illustrations combined. It's just brilliant. How does this happen? Do you write, she illustrates or what? So yeah, the the writing's done first. So that's all. It's edited. It's done and dusted. It's finished. So they don't start any any illustration until none, 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 none at all. They don't even. They may not even pick an illustrator until they've got that final text, and they know exactly what they've got, because you kind of yeah she can't start work until like we can't be changing the text while she's working and that kind of thing so yeah the text is done absolutely polished finished and then illustration so you actually work totally separately in a way it's really odd situation we actually only met for the first time at the book launch which was crazy and it was so nice that we finally got to meet but it but you're 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 working totally separate really it's it's very odd it's not i have believed that and really i've learned something today for sure so there's never an intertwining of the writer or the illustrator she takes your work and she puts hers to it you know say no, well, no. So everything gets sent to me. So it's all, once she's working on it, I'm getting sent the roughs and we correct anything that's wrong and I make suggestions. Um, so there is, like, the stuff is being sent to me, usually through the publisher. And I understand it from their point of view. They want to make sure she's not getting anything contradictory or whatever. So we tend to keep it a little bit separate. We wouldn't be in touch with each other over it mm. while it's going on just to keep everything neat and clean and tidy. Um, but, like, I am getting all the stuff in. So that's what a really exciting part of the illustration is, like, I see a new email from the publisher and you're like because oh, like there's a whole set of new spreads and, and every time they came in it was just like oh she just did gorgeous stuff with it it was just beautiful I, I couldn't I was I was bowled over by it like mm. I couldn't have been happier with it, it the just cover gorgeous. actually attracts know, you do you know that yeah. you see that look yeah. and it just it draws you in doesn't it really it? does the wee cat at the bottom there and her pangerbon is so beautiful and then the trinity at the back it just has this lovely spooky nighttime feel to it it's just she just did an amazing job she's mm. amazing it's a fantastic book number 11 do you, I was just yeah. doing the tot this morning 
Here you are, regarded as one of Ireland's top children's. <laughs> right as you are, come on, don't don't knock it down, young one. You really are, like you've made your mark. I feel like, yeah, it's kind of like, it's still a long way to go still, you know, um, doing stuff. But I love the way, yeah, it's, I've been really lucky in that there's just been a steady, just been working steadily since I started, which is great. It's just been fab. And working on different things, mm. you know, working on different age groups and stuff. So I've been really, really lucky, really lucky. Um you know when you you talk about you've been lucky and all these books, the eleven now that you have, is it is it that that you do have multiple things going on at the one time and you dip in and out? Yeah, like usually I've have I have kind of stuff that is contracted and there's a kind of a steady stream of that, and then outside of that you're working on other things, you're trying new things, you're working on stuff to submit later. So you always have a whole bunch of stuff. Like you're never normally working on one solid book for months and that's it. You usually have you know other stuff that you're working on which I actually need because like that if I get the writer's block or something and I need a big big change I need to move to another project for a few days or something and that really helps so yeah you usually have like loads of stuff going on and then you've one book that you're kind of is your is your main book for the moment whichever one you're you've got a deadline for is usually the one and this is your main one for the Christmas this market of course yeah. this year um the book is called The Nighttime Cat and the Plump Grey Mouse, A Trinity College Tale. OK, mm-hmm. I have a copy here today and I want to give to somebody. What age group would you put this at? Well, it's picture book age group. So this can be read to any, you know, a kid of a, a kid of any age. We'd usually say you're kind of around five and younger. Yes. Um, so it's, it's, it's heavy on text for a picture book. And um, so the slightly older end, end of picture book level. But it can be read to any kid. Any kid is going to love the yeah. illustrations. Don't really. children love books? Because they I do. have a granddaughter she's four and a half and she just loves to read or have books read to her and you know what they love as well see her book here Mm -hmm. read it to her once maybe twice she'll actually nearly recount to you they do they get to know it by heart and they love being read to like I always think it's so important I remember being read to when I was a kid and it was the the magic at the end of the day you know and I still I still love it with with the nieces and nephews now when you're reading something to them they just love being read to and what's great about that one as well is Lauren has has snuck the little mouse in on every page so they've got something (laughs) to look for on every page and he's doing the weirdest stuff in there too Um, but it's a lovely thing when they have something to look for on every page as well yeah I remember the last Last time you were here and you were telling me you were a, a globophobic and I had never <laughs> met anybody who was a globophobic before. Tell them what we're talking about. They mightn't have heard you last time. I think I'm milking it now. I have a slight fear of balloons. Because I, I worked, I actually worked in a balloon shop in town. Well, it wasn't a balloon shop, a party shop in town on West Street. Um, back after I finished school and uh, we used to make these big balloon arrangements so you'd have hundreds of them all around um, the, the floor So, and as you were walking by they would pop randomly because you know just the odd one would be overblown or whatever and it, I don't know it built up anxiety in me I've never gotten over I am to this day afraid of balloons I just don't like I, yeah I just don't like them terrible at kids parties so hiding a, in a, corner. a balloon banged in that corner and you'd be out of that chair would you It's just, I just don't like them I don't like the, the prospect that they may pop at any moment okay. so it's the unpopped ones that freak me out just sitting there waiting to scare the hell out of you so remember when you're having a big celebration for this young woman's next hit no balloons please no balloons. to celebrate or for no. parties or anything like that there are no go <laughs> area and um, funny Sinead Kelly the irony of it because mm. I know the last time we here we talked about you wanting to be a vet and, yeah. and, and Sinead was in with us just before you came in today these so things cool. happen I think out there in the stratosphere mm-hmm. uh, somewhere um, 
you're working away. You've had a busy time lately because two books, was it this year? Another two books this year and yeah, and one at the end of last year. So yeah, so two picture books this year. It was a, it was a busy And another one in the pipeline? Another picture book in the pipeline. Yeah, I'm on a picture book buzz at the mm-hmm. moment, I think. So another um, uh, another picture book for next year. Are we, are we about a wee donkey? So I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, because, and uh, have you a name? No name. We can't reveal anything. I don't have. Stage. I'm trying to think, do I have? I don't have a name confirmed yet. No. And But uh, yeah, I'm working on that at the moment. So that's due. And of course, with the clocks changing the weekend I hope nobody was caught actually mm-hmm. it's a nice way to be caught when the clocks go back not so nice when exactly. they go forward um, this is your time of year isn't it this Cooler, is, I love this time darker. of year darker spookier yeah it's my favourite time of year and this weather as well when it's really sunny and cold and crisp that's my favourite weather mm, best time of year what we'd all love not that bloody rain stuff nope. although I have to tell you sadly it's coming back tomorrow but mm. there you have it hopefully it won't last too, too long so for, for yourself going forward, you know, you, you have another book on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Does that just happen? Are you waiting for people to call you? Are you pitching? Just explain that to me. There's a bit of everything. So I pitch, so I pitch a lot as well. You submit a lot and you're kind of working on stuff that you want to submit and you know that isn't ready to submit until next year. So you always have kind of a string of stuff that's ready to go at any one point. But also the publishers come to you and they're like, have you got anything for this age group at the moment? Or So there's a little bit of a mix. Um, so I think the one for next year, I think I just pitched um, earlier in the year. So it's one of those out of the blue ones. But it's a bit it's a bit of both. You're kind of, and I'm like, I'd be in constant contact with the publishers. So you're kind of, you'd be talking to your editor a lot about, they'd ask what you're working on have you anything at the moment that's ready you know it's a bit of back and forth a mm. bit of both is it a solitary pursuit <laughs> that's probably a, a no-brainer but you know what I mean I know you have people around you on mm. that as well but really at the end of the day it's you and the computer and your thoughts and your creativity. It is. It's a really solitary pursuit. And in fact, I was talking, I was doing up some sort of thing for talking about screenwriting recently, which is very different. It's all collaborative and there's so many people involved. And I was trying to describe how book writing is the opposite. It's really like you write it by yourself. When it's finished, you submit. And even when, you know, you submit, you work with your editor closely. So you're working, but you'd be working with one or two people um, over a period of time. So it's really, and it's quite, it's quite good for me. I, I quite like being alone a lot. So that's a good thing because I mean I'd, I'd say for some people who drive them mad, and there's definitely sometimes when you get through the week and you're like, God, I haven't seen anybody in a while. I should go outside and talk to people, talk to real people. Um, so it's great when I get to do like school events and library events because I get to meet the kids. So I'm not like just totally shut off from the readers too. Um, but yeah, no, it's definitely uh, it's definitely good for somebody who who likes solitary pursuits. Yeah, I, I, I saw you recently in front of Littleies in oh, in yeah. the classroom. You know. What is that like? You know, the, the, the questions they pose to you. And I'm sure they open up as one or two yeah. get going. You know, mm. what? what's that like, fielding that and, and talking to them? It's great. It's a real buzz. And like I've just finished, um, Bookfest is October. So yeah. October is full of events. You're kind of doing them all month. And it's great. You're just going from classroom to library to library. And they're great. They have a real buzz off them. The kids are great crack. And depending on what age you get, you get the weirdest questions. And particularly when you go younger, they all want to tell you about their aunt's dog and, you know, the goldfish they had that died. And, you know, they come out with the weirdest stuff, just random stories they want to talk about. And they do open up a lot. They open up about what they love to read and what they want to write and what they write about and what they're... We talk a lot about what they're scared of because I sometimes um, describe how I wrote a lot of horror when I was a kid and I think it was 
because I was scared of stuff. So I used to take the monster from my wardrobe and take the monster from under my bed and write a story about it because it would make it easier. And then they would start telling you about what scares them at night, what looks funny in the room, you know. So they do, they open up really quickly and it kind of, it kind of gives you a real buzz to go on and write more for them, you know. And it's also, they're just hilarious. The stuff they come out with is so weird. And, and you know, you, through your books, prompt this with these children because yeah. they read and, you know, it opens up the mind and inspires them as well. Mm-hmm. I have to say this again. Kunek was here recently yeah. with me with that, you know, the little book, The, the Mammies. The Irish Mammies, yes, with Sarah. Your mother. Yeah, your yes, mother, yes. My mother, my mother, I think my mother has a love-hate relationship with that book because it's so from every, when I, the first time when I saw the printed copy every page, I was like, Mom, you said that one. Oh, do you remember when she said that one? It was, all, I swear to God, about half, at least half of it came out of our own home. <laughs> What's in the water in the in the McGann family? Because yourself, Kunak, Oshin, Marek, and Darius, you're a talented crew. Oh, thanks very much. You are. <laughs> we're all. We're, I think th- so. Three of us. Three, yeah, three of us are writing and then Darius um, is a sound engineer and a composer as well. So four of us working in arts, Mark's mm. a psychologist and, and he's the only kind of one who went academic. Um, but I think because the arts were really like promoting our family, like our parents probably like, I always tell the shocking story to the kids about how my parents paid me to write every day. They would pay me 10 pence a day in old Irish money to write in a special notebook they got me. So they were really big on like oh do, do something artistic do something so they really write it kind of it was really pushed and it was never talked about as something that was completely financially unreliable you know at home so so we're all now in, in jobs that are quite financially unreliable but it was never it was never seen that way at home it was like it didn't matter if it's not reliable just go for it you know so it was it was our parents really who drilled in who drilled in the uh, arts yeah. when I think of, of of the great tennis players or golfers that Tiger Woods the parents making them play mm, yeah, your yeah, parents yeah. 10p a day day right <laughs> that was it exactly like we'll reward you just do something yeah exactly I remember Kuna getting like paid to play the piano it was yeah it was it was definitely I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing to ah, fact to, to, to financially inspire us no, to no, definitely no. worked though it was just a little it incentive was, and it was a little incentive look what it's look what it's yielded exactly, look at yeah. the talent and the creativity <laughs> that's come to the fore ah oh, look you're great you're one of our own always love yeah. meeting you I'll mention it again what a gift this would be for a child for Christmas the nighttime cat and the plump grey mouse at Trinity College tale and it's available right across the country now it's by Erica McGann and I have one copy she's going to sign it and give it away the question is cat how many lives you know when you're lucky how many lives has a cat it's a saying text your answer now or whatsapp it 086-1800-658 we have loads in there's still a few minutes until the next time Erica McGann thank you so much for joining me on the show this afternoon thank you thank you Back in October, this very month, in 1918, 101 years ago, the SS Dundalk was attacked by a German U-boat as she returned to the County Loud town from Liverpool. 21 people died and 12 survived and they all had connections to the Dundalk or Greater Dundalk area and the North East. We've covered the story extensively on Late Lunch but there's been a very interesting development uh, just revealed and I'm joined by somebody who knows all about uh, the SS Dundalk. Marie Agnew is on the line. Good afternoon Marie. Good afternoon, Jerry. How are you? Thanks for taking my call. And you, of course, are Secretary of the SS Dundalk Committee. Well, tell us what's been found. Yes, there has been a development. We've known for the last few weeks about the bell, but uh, actually that's the news, yes. 
Well, we have known for the last few weeks, but there was some issues that uh, we had to clarify. So we kept it under wraps. So um, just this week now, we've decided to uh, let the good news out. So, so the ship's bell, the actual ship's bell has been recovered. The actual, yes, the actual ship's bell has been recovered. So it was recovered by the uh, some of those that were involved in the t- 2009 um, expedition. They are a team from the Isle of Man and the two people involved in that team are husband and wife, uh, Steve Cowley and Michelle Hayward. So um, a couple of weeks back, they sent us a bit of a teaser. Um, as you know, Paddy Agnew, he was involved with them in the 2009 expedition, but he kept in touch with Steve. So we one, one night we got um, a WhatsApp photo of Abel. It was covered in barnacles, uh, but no details. So it was a bit of a teaser. They gave us no details, but we just had to hold... Hold, hold fast and, and wait. So a couple of weeks after that, then they sent us another WhatsApp photo of the bell in all its glory with the, just the big letters on it, Dundalk. Ah. An emotional moment, to say the least. Really. I'm sure, Marie, my oh my, this story just gets better <laughs> as time uh, moves on. And not alone has the bell been recovered, there's another important artefact they picked up as well. Well, the bell has been recovered, but its hanger has been also recovered. So the hanger itself is a different metal. It had to go through a preservation process. So that is actually still going on at the minute. Another artefact that was uh, recovered in near perfect uh, condition is a wash basin from one of the cabins. So we believe it to be a first class cabin. Um, or perhaps it could be from the captain's cabin. We may never know, but it is in near perfect condition. There's just a tiny chip out of it. It has also had to go through a preservation process. Uh, So, yes, those three items um, have been recovered. Isn't it wonderful? I I can just picture that image of the barnacled bell and then it in its pristine glory. My God, what a transformation that must be. Now, here's the question. Uh, you mentioned Steve Cowley and Michelle Haywood there and congratulations to them on, on finding these uh, the bell and, and the artefacts as well. What's going to happen with them now, Marie? So, um, well, so, yes, we they know the emotional interest uh, in, and, and the connection between Dundalk and the SS Dundalk itself. Uh, they have been following it. So they, con- you know, they had a consultation between themselves and the team and they felt that the rightful place for, for the artefacts is back in Dundalk. Oh, that's great. So we, had, we had to confirm that with them. With them. Uh, we've also had to liaise with the museum in, in Dundalk so, because when when they come back to the town, they will be presented to the museum, the rightful place for them to be displayed. So uh, we had to clarify all that just to make a hundred percent sure that you know, in the event of it going out there, that have you know, that they have been recovered, that they were definitely coming back to the town. Oh, that's so just the, great news, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so the but it, it's going to take another couple of weeks for for that to happen. 
as I say, two of the artefacts still are going through the preservation process. So over the next few weeks, we will be liaising with the museum as to where they are going to be uh, displayed in the museum, how they are going to be displayed in the museum also. So hopefully the, the dive team will make its way to Dundalk with the artefacts to, to present them. And there you are, you, your journey, you all thought with uh, uh, the, putting up the memorial in the town, to the book, to all that's happened yeah, in the last few years. Closer. Yeah, yeah you, you probably thought closer. the journey was over, did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is like closure. It's like the heart of the bell, sorry, like the heart of the wreck is coming home. The heart of the ship is coming home. Mm. Oh, it's just great, great story. It's a wonderful piece. Just the, the you know, it, the, it is in the newspapers tomorrow. The, the, the picture of the bell will be online very shortly. So we've kind of, we've guarded it a little bit. Mm. Oh, that's understandable until you were absolutely assured that it was genuine and now you can reveal it all to the world. Well, listen, I'm just delighted we caught you today because, you know, we've had a keen interest here in Late Lunch LMFM in this story since it began and you formed the committee and you did all you did that I mentioned there. But it's great that this has happened now. Well done to all concerned. And I'm sure we'll be hearing more about the homecoming of the bell, the basin, etc. Absolutely. Certainly will. Thanks, Marie. Thank you for taking our call. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Marie Agnew there, Secretary. Very happy Secretary, I have to say, of the SS Dundalk Committee. That's our lot on Late Lunch for this Tuesday afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. And we leave you with a real nice one this afternoon. Yes, and we dedicate it to everybody who's run a marathon with Team Carry over the 10 years. The time of my life, just for all of you. See you tomorrow, half one. Now I had the time of my life. No, I never felt like this before. Yes, I swear it's a truth. And I owe it all to you.
The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors annual sales event now on. One-off price reductions and special APR finance available during this event. Call in today and save thousands at Blackstone Motors, Drada and Dundalk. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.